0: Well then let's turn to Daniel chapter 3 the passage that we read a moment ago on page 1022 and verse 18 Let's begin reading at verse 16. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. That is a great speech, uh, worthy of more than we can look at this morning. I want to confine what we look at this morning just to the last part of it, where they resolve that we will not worship the gold image which you have set up. We do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, we began uh, looking at this chapter last week, and we looked closely at the image itself. And we saw, I hope, the connection between this image, which Nebuchadnezzar builds in chapter 3, and the image which he saw in his dream in chapter 2. And uh, when we compare these images, when we bring them together, we have a kind of interpretive key to what's happening in this chapter. And we see the building of this image in two ways. First of all, we see it as effectively an act of defiance. Because God had told him through Daniel that the image which he saw in the dream represented the four successive kingdoms of the ancient world. His own, Nebuchadnezzar's, was the first Babylon represented by the head of gold. This golden image is an attempt by Nebuchadnezzar to extend his own rule and to perpetuate his own kingdom. Of course, the kingdoms of the ancient world were brought to nothing by the stone that hit them. But this seems to be a statement to the effect that my golden kingdom Will continue. So, although he was chastened and partially humbled by the dream, because his pride wasn't broken, his pride has reasserted itself and he has now built an image entirely of gold. So, it's an act of defiance against the Word of God. It is also an act of deification. He is making himself. God, and making the state of which he is head, God. You'll remember in the image which he dreamed, the weakness appeared to lie in the feet of iron mingled with clay. That is where the stone struck, and that was interpreted by Daniel as being something to do with human weakness, that the governments had become weak and mixed Instead of responding in faith and obedience, Nebuchadnezzar decides to remedy this situation himself. What he decides to do is to strengthen his kingdom, to make sure he has a a grip on it and that every single part of his empire, all peoples and languages are welded together in obedience to him, in obedience to him. And you'll notice that although Nebuchadnezzar makes a token mention of the gods of Babylon, uh, you'll notice that he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which God is able to deliver you out of my hands? So he is the supreme ruler, and he is content to have a system of gods, which even includes Jehovah, because you'll remember that the holy vessels from God's temple were placed in the Babylonian temple. They were honored, so he's quite happy to have a system of religions, as long as he himself presides over them. And that's why I think with many others that this image was actually an image of himself. After all, this image is distinguished from the gods. On three occasions, there's a reference to your gods and the image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar, as chapter 4 will make plain, is a very proud man and he brings the state under himself. Everything, essentially, is under himself. So there's an act of deification going on here. Uh, He claims, the state claims, he claims supreme authority and therefore demands the people's total allegiance. And that's what's happening with all the people from every part of the kingdom brought together and bowing before the image. And uh, we noticed that tendency in governments, whether they are on the extreme left or on the extreme right. I remember uh, an, an old history teacher I had once telling me that the political spectrum was not a line but a horseshoe, that they tended, both ends tended to meet whether you have totalitarianism on the right or on the left, the family government will always be eroded, the government of the church will be eroded, and the state will become everything. And the state will use the religious inclination of man for its own end. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is supreme. Now, I closed last Sabbath morning by saying that Uh, No dissent was expected at this gathering. Everybody's jobs and careers and families were very, very important. And uh, as I mentioned too at the close last Sabbath, people will accept tyranny providing they have enough money and sexual freedom. If these two things can be given people, they will cede any amount of control to a government. And unsurprisingly, when the music plays, and of course there is the seduction of the music as well as the terror of the furnace, but when the music plays, they all fall down and they fall down quickly. With the exception, of course, famously, of these three young men. They refused to bow. They are immortalized in scripture. Their example is still taught to us, and I want Uh, to turn the spotlight on them. Now, we've met them, of course, already. They came as very young men uh, to Babylon, along with Daniel, completely severed from their upbringing and their religion, and plunged into the very citadel of humanism. They were taught in the university at Nebuchadnezzar's expense just because of their ability. But when they were tested, they stayed loyal to the faith. They kept even the food laws that God had commanded them to keep. And the result is, through a series of events that God permitted, they are actually brought into government. But now uh, the crisis becomes greater than it was before. In chapter 1, who knows what the consequence would have been for refusing the king's food in chapter two they faced death all right but the matter was out of their hands nebuchadnezzar had said that unless his dream would be revealed and interpreted the inner circle of the chaldeans all the rulers would be killed but that was out of their hands It wasn't a choice that they had to make. It's simply a matter of, well, if they were going to be killed, they were going to be killed. Here, it's definitely a matter of life and death, and it's in their hands. It's their choice this time. They can either bow or not bow. So to bow or not to bow is the question. Will they do it? Prolong their life and prolong their influence? Or will they stand? and suffer the consequences. Now, first of all, what was their duty? Well, their duty really is quite plain. The act of falling down before the image comes under the first commandment, which says that you shall have no other gods before me. That commandment, like every other commandment, is one that we can only keep if we keep it in the heart, first of all. We can only keep it if we truly love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Now, if the image was an image of a false God, which I don't think it was, but if the image was an image of the false false God, then their duty is plain. They are simply not to fall down before it. If the image is an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, then it's perhaps not quite so plain. Because you could say that bowing down before the image would be the same as bowing down before the king himself. And bowing down before the king is not inherently wrong. The Greek word used and the Hebrew word used for bowing down was quite normal in connection with bowing down before a civil ruler. So if you could bow before Nebuchadnezzar, you could bow before his image. Nonetheless, it is quite plain in the scripture that Nebuchadnezzar intended it as a religious act. In other words, he intended it as an act that required absolute allegiance. That's the point. The king here, or the state, is demanding the allegiance of you that only God has the right to demand, total and absolute. That's normally what a tyrant does. You are mine. You are exclusively mine. You are altogether mine, body, soul, and spirit. You are mine. And in that respect, total allegiance becomes a religious act. So even if it is an image of Nebuchadnezzar, it becomes a sin and a violation of the first commandment. In that connection, I'm not going to go out on this just now, but it's worth saying that sometimes oaths and vows can become snares. Even the oath of allegiance to our own queen is now a short oath of allegiance, and it's not as objectionable. But if you go back years, to the 17th century particularly, you'll find that the oath of allegiance to the monarch was that long, closely scripted. And it required things of people that kings had no right to require. And to pledge yourself, according to those terms, was to pledge yourself in a way that you should not. So we have to watch things like oaths and vows, what we pledge ourselves to, what our allegiance really is. I know our own sister church in Ireland is sometimes frowned on by Protestants because it doesn't allow membership of the Orange Order. But membership of the orange order is not allowed for good reasons. Sometimes what you commit yourself to is at variance to what God requires of you. So be careful on these things. Watch before whom you bow. Watch what you sign. Watch what you agree to. Because thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's not simply a straightforward matter of identifying with Jehovah or identifying with Buddha. It's a little complex than that. Now then, the duty may be straightforward, but the problem lies in our own hearts, which, as Jeremiah tells us, are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And you can be sure when we're faced with a crisis that we will try to find a reason why we shouldn't do our duty, which seems otherwise plain. (coughs) And you can be sure that somewhere inside Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego they'll be looking for a reason why they shouldn't bother standing but should simply bow down. And I can suggest five possible reasons. Uh, A couple of those we touched already when we were looking at eating the food laws, sorry, breaking the food laws in chapter 1. But there are some others involved here. The first method of evading their duty would be to focus on the nature of the act and simply to take bowing down as an act of respect. But of course they knew that everybody else didn't see it like that. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar was demanding total allegiance to himself and to his system. They knew that everybody else there Interpreted the act like that and therefore in that respect it wouldn't simply do to pretend that it was an act of respect. Now that's very important. When you do a thing, you always have to be alive as to what other people are thinking of it. How do they interpret it? How are they likely to interpret it? How do they in fact interpret it? And if everybody in the world thinks that what you're doing is an act of worship like that, you should refrain from it. It is simply trying to evade the issue, to call it respect rather than worship. The second evasion would focus on intent. In other words, they would probably say, and maybe somebody might even say to them, look, there's a difference between what you actually do And what you intend. In other words, why don't you just bow your body. But stay standing in your heart. Uh, Like the little boy in primary school. Who was told to sit down by his teacher three times. and Eventually sat down and said to the person beside him. I'm still standing up inside. So. You could do something with your body, but be different in your heart. Does that work? No. Why not? Because we belong to God, body, soul, and spirit. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Holy, acceptable, for that is your reasonable service. Presentation of the body. There... Inclusive of the mind or the soul, if you like, of the spirit. But inclusive too, obviously, of the body itself. We are his body and soul. We are his by creation, yes. His by redemption too. We have been bought back with a price. And how dare we think that it's okay to give him internal assent while somehow denying him externally. The whole of us is God's. What we think, what we say, and what we do, everything matters to him. Intention doesn't trump everything. The fact of the matter is that the only way they can communicate to everybody around them here is by their bodies. And by yielding assent with their bodies, they are yielding assent Period. Intention is one of the things that matters a lot. It's one of the reasons why the Jesuits were so uh, distrusted uh, in Britain and elsewhere, too, because their oath of allegiance, which was, of course, primarily to the papacy, allowed uh, lots of evasions in their life. They, they, They could even tell untruths on certain occasions because their ultimate allegiance, you see, lay elsewhere. That's why the term Jesuit became more or less an... Synonymous with somebody who who could be economical with the truth, let's say. The Christian must not be like that. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Let your testimony be clear. Let your witness be unmistakable. Be who you are. Let it be known who you are. And don't try the evasion of saying, well, my intent is all right and I'll just bow in my body. So that's the second possible evasion. The third possible evasion is to say that the greater good will be secured if we bow. In other words, we're in Babylon for a purpose. God has brought us here. We need to be a help to other Jews who are perhaps less able than ourselves. If we simply conform for a minute or two, and just bow our knees, that's all, we will retain our position, our influence will remain in the very court of the king. Now, um, we met this kind of thing in chapter one because the same argument would be present in connection with eating the king's food and drinking his wine. Just do it. Just do it because of the greater good But you know, if anything, I think the argument is more subtle once they're in government than it was before they got into government. Now, you may think that the opposite would be true. You may think that the idea of possibly getting power is what might make you compromise. But I don't think so. I think once you're in, once your foot is in the door, and once you're in the cabinet, and you're set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and how much more powerful can you get? The temptation then is greater not to lose what you've gained, you see. Because to gain something is still possibly a dream, you see. Well, I might get there, and I might not. But now you've got there. And most of you know that, uh, according to human nature, once you've tasted the cup of power, it's very difficult to put it down. In fact, some have to drink it to its dregs like Nebuchadnezzar himself. The temptation was, look, we're here. Look what we can do. Look what we've done already. Let's just conform. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it should really be quite obvious. First of all, as Paul says, we should never do evil that good may come. Never do wrong in the hope that good will come out of it. And, of course, the subtlety here is that, you know, find well that God does work all things together for the good. And one way or another, God will use even your sins and he will overrule them because that's who God is and that's what God does. But that never gives you a license for disobedience or me. Never. We can never say to God, well, I'm going to do evil just now and I look to you to clear up the mess i look to you to sort it out or maybe even I'll atone for it myself somehow. No. We never do evil that good may come. There's a second thing wrong with this line of reasoning too. Once you go down the road of accommodation and compromise, you cease to be the man or woman you were. It's as simple as that. You cease to be the man or the woman you were, And when you've done the deed, when you've transacted with the devil, when you have compromised and accommodated, your influence is never as great as it would have been. It becomes diluted. It becomes polluted. Oh, yes, if I bow, I'll retain my position. Yes, you'll retain your position, but you'll have lost your power. You'll have lost your power. And very often when God's people do this, when they accommodate and compromise, even the world itself will notice that their power is gone. It's a solemn thought, but it is true. You lose your influence, you lose your witness. Friends, God can look after himself. God can look after his own cause. His cause never depends on your ability to accommodate and to compromise. Never. And never try to Rationalize or excuse your act as though you're doing it for God's sake. You never lie for God's sake. You never cheat for God's sake. You never deny God externally for God's sake. The fourth possible evasion is the relative importance of the thing. Now that's another one we met in chapter 1. And it's easy to understand there because some of the people could have said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego really uh, eating a bit of pork is neither here nor there in the grand scheme of things, is it? Why don't you just eat a bit of pork? And amongst all the laws that God has given clean and unclean food are at bottom on the list of importance. Now you say, well you could hardly argue this. In this case You could hardly say that the act of bowing before an image is unimportant. Well, yes, you can if you're in the crisis. And if the devil is busy, who always distorts reality, is that not what he he does? He's a master of virtual reality. He makes things appear to be what they're not. He did that at the very beginning when he said to Eve, has God said, you shall not eat of all of the trees of the garden? He maximized the prohibition and he minimized what she was allowed. (coughs) Astonishing. He can do the same thing in a case like this. Bowing down before an idol. It's hardly a matter of justice, is it? It's hardly a matter of delivering the poor and the needy. Fighting for the orphan or fighting for the widow. It's not a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of establishing good laws in a kingdom, is it? I mean, all you're doing is bowing before a lump of wood that's got a gold plate on it. In the grand scheme of things, does God care that much about that? Have you ever been tempted to think in such a way as though religious laws like this don't really matter all that much? The answer to that, Well, the first commandment is the first commandment. It's not just first in order, it is first in point of importance. You shall have no other gods before me. The worship of God matters. The honor and the glory and the dignity of his own name matters. Doing what he wants in connection with his own service matters. So they don't have the option. The last evasion, in some ways, might be the most powerful It has to do with being compelled to do something by a higher authority. In this case, obedience to the state, which is something that God requires. He requires it. We're to obey governments, even when they are not Christian governments. The letter to the Romans is plain on that. But that's not without qualification. You may say, well, there's no qualification in Romans. Granted, there's no qualification in Romans, but there is a qualification elsewhere. It's the same, actually, with every single allegiance that's required of you by God. Think of the three forms of government. Think of all, first of all, of the most foundational primitive government, which is the family which a humanistic state will always attack, like it's attacking in the UK. In the family, God has established a government. It tells children to be subject, to be obedient to their parents. That sounds absolute. Is it absolute? Of course not. If parents require you, for example, to blaspheme the name of God or something to that effect, or to break the laws of God, you are not bound, in such a case, to obey There's an exception to the rule. Wives are to subject themselves to their husband's authority. Is that absolute? Of course it's not absolute. If a husband requires anything uh, degrading or anything that is uh, ungodly or opposed to the law of God, she's not bound to obey her husband. There is an exception. Take the government of the church. You're to be subject to the elders that God has appointed over you. Is that absolute? Of course it's not absolute. If the elders again require you to do something ungodly or unbiblical, you are not bound to obey that. The same is true in connection with the state. What appears absolute, and very often it's put in its absolute in form, to encourage us to lay hold of it as the default position that we obey and that we are subject but what's sound subject is not quite or absolute. Is not quite so absolute. When Peter and John were dragged before the Sanhedrin, who were the supreme, the civil authority, they said, you must not preach the name of Jesus. To which they replied in the immortal words, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, if there is a conflict between lawful human authority and the word of God, it is God that must be obeyed. Now, the tendency is to focus on exceptions all the time. We're obsessed with ex- exceptions. We discuss exceptions endlessly. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, we need to know what the exceptions are. But sometimes the discussion and obsession with exceptions can blur the rule. Our default position is to be good law-abiding Christian citizens. And even when the government does pass laws that are ungodly, we are still to be respectful law-abiding citizens. The stand that these men took was a particular stand. Uh, They didn't go on a campaign of any kind. They simply did their duty. They simply did their duty. They would not break the law of God. And let us communicate our own witness like that, that we are too law-abiding citizens. But never at the expense of God's law. Never, never, never at the expense of God's law. Be that commandment amongst the greatest or amongst the least. Our forefathers paid a lot for that teaching. I mentioned just not long ago the profound influence of the the book Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. The law is king. The importance of constitution. Even the Israelite king had a constitution. You'll remember that the king of Israel had to write out the law by hand before he became king himself. He was bound by a constitution. Of course, for the Stuart monarchy, the king was the law. Rex Lex. At the risk of his life, Samuel Rutherford inverted that and said, Lex Rex, the law is king. And let's be thankful for that and let's make sure we preserve that by standing for what God requires. Remember, the ultimate guarantee of our liberties is God and his law. If he's put out of the way, humanism will eventually prevail and with that always eventually comes tyranny. Um, This kind of thing is much more important than we realize. In the rise of National Socialism in Germany in the 1930s, it's a well known fact that Christian pastors did very little to stop it. Very little to stop it. And one of the texts used to justify doing little to stop it was Romans chapter 13 that God has ordained the civil authorities and that our duty is to be subject. That was the text used. Of course, one notable Protestant dissenter was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Most of you will know that he was executed just before the end of the war in 1945. What most people don't know is that he was led out to his execution uh, by a Christian Nazi official who gave him a text of Scripture to comfort him on his way out to his execution. Can a Christian really occupy both sets of shoes? Can a Christian both stand where Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood and stand in the place where the person takes him out and gives him a text to comfort him as a dutiful servant of the Nazi government? Can a Christian stand in both sets of shoes? I don't think so. We need to work out what the exceptions are and stand for the Word of God. Five possible evasions, focusing on the nature of the act, the intention, the relative importance, the greater good, and civil duty. What would you do? I've said uh, since I began, Daniel, that in the West we admire martyrdom, but we don't do it. We admire it, but we don't do it. Sad to say, I think, and I hope I'm wrong, but sad to say, I think we lack the clarity of conviction and the strength of will. I think the fact of the matter is that we've had it far too easy, far too long. Far too easy, far too long. I honestly feel that a good number of us in the Christian West, would rationalize this particular crisis away and that we would find a reason just to bow down and to get on with it. We all, on the face of it anyway, we admire the young girl in the Columbine High School who had a gun pointed to her head and she was asked if she believed in Jesus and she said yes and a book was written. She said yes and of course she was shot dead for saying yes we do admire it but i wonder how many of us inside might be saying why not just say no because he would move on elsewhere You've got a life to live live the rest of your life to the glory of god well that's what i mentioned earlier yes you may live on you may live on but who lives on what kind of person lives on That's the point. What she did was right. It's still right. It'll always be right. It'll always be right to be a martyr. Many things may compel people to a kind of martyrdom for different things, but it's always right to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's never wrong. And you know, it's good to ask, all of us to ask ourselves if we're martyr material. Now, this is a tricky question, actually. Are you martyr material? Am I? Perhaps my own customary answer to that would be, well, I hope I am. But I would need grace on the day to die. And that is true. You need grace on the day to die. But it's very easy to use that as an excuse for perhaps being not that willing to die. Or not being that much of a martyr. Is there any way in which you can test yourself? I think there is. And it's really a quite a simple test. It's what do you do in lesser situations? That's a simple test. Jesus said, He who is faithful in what is least will also be faithful in much. Are you able to take a stand over smaller things? If you are, then you'll be able to take this one. The apostle himself said, I die daily. What did he mean by that? He only died once. But when he said, I die daily, what did he mean by that? Well, I think he meant that in countless acts of self-denial, he put Christ first every day. He really did. And it cost him things. I fought with the wild beasts at Ephesus. I was in the deep. I was nearly drowned, I was stoned. But he died every day because he took decisions that said no to self for Christ's sake. And our ability to do that now is a valid test as to whether we really have a martyr spirit. I know that even with the best will in the world, we are still going to be dependent upon grace for the day. But nonetheless, if we can't stand over what is small, do we really think we will stand for what is great. A martyr is to be admired and a martyr is to be emulated. We are to lay down our lives for Christ's sake. There are two additional factors that made the trial harder. Two additional factors. The first is the fact that Daniel wasn't with them. Now if you're going to ask where Daniel was, I can only say that I haven't a clue I know that critics of the Book of Daniel and there are plenty, uh, some of them say that it's uh, just a gathering together of legends. Um, well, they've been gathered together, they say, by a careless editor. Well, they're careless and they're careless. they're careless, isn't there? I mean, how careless is an editor who just happens to omit the major character of the book? That's really very careless. I don't know where Daniel is. I mean, it is a bit of a genuine mystery, but well, he's just not there. That's it. He might have been ill. Because he's so high in government, he might have been somewhere else on important business. Maybe he's in a very tight inner circle whose loyalty is not doubted. I don't know, and it doesn't matter. <coughs> it's not a reason to disbelieve the book or its authorship. But there's one point at which it's important. And the point is that he's just not there to help. Now it can be very difficult sometimes to do the right thing without the guidance and the leadership of the people that we've looked up to in the past. For whatever reason, if they're not there, it just becomes harder to do the right thing. And sometimes we can get a surprise as to how weak we are. Some of you discover that perhaps when you leave home for the first time. Without the support network, you're not quite the same. You didn't realize how dependent you were on certain people. Sometimes it can reveal that the Christian witness was not real at all, which is a terrible thing. Maybe you've just been kept in check by older and wiser heads, simply by the peer pressure in your community or in your church. Uh, a sense of deference to your elders, anything like that. But at the end of the day, none of it was internalized. It, It wasn't just yourself. It wasn't your obedience. It wasn't your faith. Like Joash, of whom we read in the scriptures that he was walking in the days of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the high priest, who was a guardian. And when Jehoiada died, Jewash drifted. Tragically, he ended up, killing, ended up killing Jehoiada's son. But as long as Jehoiada lived, he did what was right. Y- young men and young women, it's good uh, to follow the examples of your fathers and mothers and others in the church of God, but make sure that that's not all you're doing. Internalize everything. Make sure it's your faith It's your belief, it's your obedience, it's got to be yours. And there's a real test for them here because they just didn't have the person around that always led them, the one that led them to take a stand about the food laws, the one that helped them take a stand in chapter 2, he's just not here. At least they had, each one of them had two others for company. But sometimes in life, the children's chorus will be true. Dare to be a Daniel and dare to stand alone. And sometimes you might be required to stand alone. That's when you really need to be sure that your faith is in God. Uh, Paul was glad that the Philippians were like that. He said to them, as you have always obeyed, he said, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Actually, there's a slight ambiguity there, but um, it doesn't matter really. The ambiguity doesn't affect the point at issue. The point at issue is, whether I'm there or not, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You can imagine that the Philippian congregation was stronger when Paul was there and when he was gone. Well. Somebody once said that the acid test of true religion is who you think is looking over your shoulder. Another way of putting it is what another person said, that the acid test is who you are on your own. Who's looking over your shoulder? Who are you concerned is looking over your shoulder? Your elder, your minister, your mother, your father, or God? Make sure it's God. So it was hard to face without Daniel. The second additional difficulty was the difficulty of offending somebody who had been good to them. We can say what we like about Nebuchadnezzar and other tyrants. The fact of the matter is that he took these young men and he trained them at the expense of the crown. He employed them and he promoted them very high in the local government of Babylon And that's in spite of the fact that the rest of the inner circle didn't like that being done. They were quite happy with employing these foreigners uh, back home, Uh, but not in the province of Babylon, but he did all that. He did all that. And it's much harder to be crossing those who are good to us, isn't it? When you have, for God's sake, perhaps to make some kind of stand against those who have shown you favours and kindnesses. In which case, be additionally considerate and courteous and kind and careful. Um, But if you need make it, make it. The last additional difficulty was the severity of the punishment. Of course, when the furnace was heated seven times more than usual, Simply the blast of it could kill you, as people were to discover. Before that, it could be a bit of a lingering and painful death. It's not easy to face torture. James Rennick, the last covenanter to be executed for his faith, was terrified of being tortured. Terrified of it. Thomas Cranmer, the English Archbishop, was terrified of it too. And when he was about to be burnt for his faith, you'll remember that he recanted the Protestant faith. And then he saw, um, no, sorry it was, it was, sorry, it was prior to his recantation that he saw Latimer and Ridley uh, burnt at the stake, just outside Balliol College in Oxford. And he trembled and he recanted, but uh, he got no peace in his conscience. And then he affirmed the truths of God again. And so he was burnt. And you'll remember that when he was burnt, he put his right hand into the flame. This unworthy hand, he said, because he had recanted with it. Um, But it's not easy to face a flame, is it? It's not easy to face a flame. And we have to acknowledge that that was an additional difficulty too. Now, um, I had a few more things to say. My time has gone, and I'm going to leave it there. But I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll just resume this uh, this evening with God's grace. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Eternal God, we pray for strength, a strength that is not our own. And we pray to seek it and we pray to do the lesser duties that we might be found faithful in the greater ones. And we pray that all of us would have the grace just to consider ourselves. We cannot really know anybody else's heart, but we can deal with our own and help us to ask ourselves whether we too are willing to die daily. We pray that we would be mindful of the importance of a consistent witness, how vital it was really for the cause of God that these three men just did stand and did not bow. We are even speaking about them this morning because they did stand and because they didn't bow. And actions that can appear fairly insignificant to people can have such tremendous effects if they are done in love, done in faith, done in the power of God, and done for the glory of God. Be with us all and encourage us, for we live in an increasingly oppressive age. Grant us deliverance, we pray, in the Saviour's name. Amen. Our last uh, psalm is Psalm 16 on page 16. <clears throat> psalm 16 on, on page 16. And we sing to the tune Zürich. <clears throat> Protect me, O my God. You are my refuge through. I said, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The godly in the land for holiness renowned, they are the glorious ones in whom all my delight is found. Their sorrows will increase who on false gods rely. I will not sacrifice to them. Their worship I defy. O Lord, you are to me my cup and portion sure. The share that is assigned to me you guard and keep secure. And it's keeping our eye on that really that helps us to do the right thing. Uh, these opening four stanzas, let's stand and sing